This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. I hope you are getting outside and enjoying your garden. Spring is in full swing, and I am very excited because I just received my first native plants via mail order. I've got bare roots of bleeding heart and bone set. I also received black chokeberry and red chokeberry shrubs, as well as spiria. The chokeberries will provide much-needed berries for the birds, and the bleeding heart, bone set, and spiria will feed nectar to pollinators like my bees and butterflies. Bleeding heart is particularly helpful to bumblebee queens emerging in the early spring. I've been outside every day with my digital meat thermometer, taking the temperature of the soil. Nesting ground bees usually emerge after the soil has warmed to 50 degrees for five to seven consecutive days, making it safe to dig. It has been hovering around 50 degrees for three days now, so I am nearly ready to start planting. And the best news of all, we just got two inches of rain. What a relief. Anyway, I think we've got a great show for you today. Today, we will be talking to Felder Rushing, award-winning gardening author and newspaper columnist, about his brand new book, Maverick Gardeners. And now for our first citizen science project. Much has been made about seed balls. By that, I mean encasing native seeds in balls of clay and tossing them into an area that needs rewilding. There are some ethical considerations involved. Is it right to toss clay seed balls onto someone else's property? Say an abandoned parking lot or building construction site? Let us know what you think. Do you create seed balls? And if so, where have you planted them? And what results have you gotten? Send us an email at birdhuggerpodcast at gmail.com. And now let's go to the email mailbag. Just a quick note about bird's nests. I've been receiving quite a number of emails from people who are concerned and confused about the location of bird's nests in their yards. One woman wrote in to say that robins had decided to build their nest on the branch of a tree right next to the back door of the house. With a big family, the back door of her house is constantly being opened and closed, and the birds are looking really stressed out over it. She is concerned they will abandon the nest, leaving the nestlings to fend for themselves. The one thing to keep in mind is that birds are smart and spend a lot of time scoping out the perfect nest site. However, this is often done before spring fully arrives. The air is still chilly and people have a tendency to remain indoors. A spot they watched that was quiet and appeared safe for weeks can suddenly become the worst location in the world once humans bust out the door to enjoy the warmer weather. Keep in mind there are first-time bird parents just like there are first-time human parents. A lot of mistakes can get made with that first nest of young, and that is mostly due to the fluctuations in human activity in the yard. Since most songbirds fledge their young in anywhere from 14 to 21 days, 
the best course of action is to divert human activity to another door until the young learn how to fly and leave the nest. Thank you all for your emails. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Felder Rushing. Felder is an award-winning author of over 20 books, including the highly popular book Slow Gardening, which encourages mindfulness and living in the present moment while in the garden. Today we will be discussing his newest book, Maverick Gardeners, Dr. Dirt and Other Determined Independent Gardeners, published by the University Press of Mississippi. In this book, he celebrates the diversity of those individuals with singular and unique ways of expressing their gardening talents. And yes, I'm talking about people who plant flowers and car tires and decorate their front lawns with folk art like plastic pink flamingos and blue bottle trees. This book shows us our humanity by cutting through cultural bias and judgmentalism. What some people would call quirky, bohemian, absurd, or extremely original, the gardens and the people Felder chronicles in his book show us how growing flowers in the yard provides escape and sanctuary for those who have endured bullying, racism, and other forms of ostracism in their lives and just need a peaceful place to go to escape intolerance. Felder, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. You know, I know you're up in extreme New England. I'm in the extreme deep south, but I live in England part of the year. But gardening is gardening is gardening. It's different styles, but it's uh, we're just people just trying to knock around our yards. Right. Gardening for me is therapy. You know, it just gets my mind off everything that's worrying me. You know, a lot of people see that. I'm, you know, I'm a retired university horticulturist, and there's a left brain of horticulture, which is goal oriented. You're trying to do something, you're trying to be more, more efficient, you're trying to fill the freezer or get yard of the month or win a blue ribbon. Those are goal oriented gardening, and a lot of us do that. But there's also a, a right brain side. It's gardening for the love of it, process oriented. We may not see a red tomato, but we can paint smiley faces on the green ones. That may be all we got, but at least it's something we're enjoying the process all year long. You got it. Okay, so tell me, what is your definition of a maverick gardener? You know them all. Uh, everywhere we go, we see people who, and let me use a, a, a metaphor. I watch uh, NFL football games and see all the fans out there, and they've got the grease paint and the funny hats and the big signs and all like that. Well, when they go home, they don't look like that. They're normal but they spread out across the countryside. You know they're out there, but the only time you see them is when they, woo you know, at the games. Well, Maverick Gardeners are the people who do that in their yards, and they can't take the grease paint off. They're still scattered. There's a lot of them, but there may only be one in your community. There may be two or three, but typically it's people who do what they want to do, how they want to do it. They're not rebels. They're not pushing back. They're just simply trying to express themselves. Like some, my daughter with a lot of piercings and, and ink and stuff. I love her to death. That's how she chooses to express herself. Not what I would do, but we have room for it all. She has good intentions. And that's the way these uh, Maverick Gardens are. Yeah, I think maybe we all have a little Maverick Gardener in, inside us just wanting to get out. <laughs> Yeah. And, and the truth is, it's like doing your hair. You know, I've had long hair all of my life, except when I was in the Navy. And I'm not growing my hair on purpose. I'm just not cutting it. 
And it's a whole different approach. And same thing with gardeners who mow around a patch of wildflowers, maybe to leave a, a place for the Easter bunny to lay an egg, or because they like pollinators. You don't have to have all wildflower meadow or a naturalistic garden. They just mow around a few things and leave a few things, something for the birds and the bees. We tend to accessorize a lot too. You know, right. it might be a, a gnome, might be a secret gnome. It might be 55 flamingos. But it could be, you know what a glass bottle tree is? I, I've seen them up in New England, but they're oh, not yes. common. Oh, yeah. yeah. Blue, blue bottles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, see, people who do that, you know, flamingo people are all feel like they're part of a tribe. They're all sort of flamingo people. We're going to get together, and together we're okay. Bottle tree people are every single one thinks they're the only one because it's very personal and, and they're, they're unique. And so there's a, there's a lot of psychology in being a, a maverick gardener. A friend of mine coined a phrase, we call them diggers, D-I-G-R, for determined independent gardeners. We might be in a garden club, plant society, might be a master gardener, you know, might be a horticulturist, but doesn't really matter. We just like to do our own things, usually in the backyard, but sometimes out front in what I call a total yard show. Important thing is, Catherine, they're okay. They're just different. They're marching into a different drama. They're not hurting anybody. And people may not like it, but there's room for us. Gardening is a big tent. It's not black and white like politics or religion. Some people don't like birds in their yard or squirrels. Other people feed them. See, so, you know, there's room for us all. And I'm celebrating the unique people who dare to express themselves and hope that other people understand. All right. So tell us about Dr. Dirt. Dirt was, uh, see, I've done a program on National Public Radio for a long, long time. Uh, it's a weekly program. And for about 10 years, uh, this fellow and I co-hosted this program. We, we've lectured at the uh, New England Flower Show in Boston. Uh, we've been all over the country. He passed away uh, about four years ago. But when I met him, I was looking for people who grow unusual plants, heirloom plants. You're not going to find them in suburbia. They're going to be in small towns country gardens, poor part of town, backyards, but they're the kind of plants that I call them pass-along plants. Everybody grows them. You grow them, I grow them, but you can't buy them in garden centers. They're not fashionable. Heirloom plants. In the process of doing that, I stumbled across this man who had the most over-the-top garden. It was wall-to-wall perennials, tall perennials, annuals, bulls. There's something in bloom every week of the year, and uh, he was kind of reclusive because people didn't understand him. He's a black man who spent a lot of time in Canada. He came back home and he really wasn't accepted in a little small Mississippi town. So he, he retreated in his garden. And when I started visiting with him, he saw that there's lots of us out there. We started visiting others. Next thing you knew it, we were on national public radio every week. We lectured uh, Philadelphia Flower Show all over the country, just sharing the, the good news that gardening isn't always a stick up your ear. It's not all horticulture. Sometimes you can garden for fun and just be yourself if you dare. Now, he was bullied as a child, as I understand from your book. And isn't it just wonderful that gardening could just sort of cradle him and nourish him and yeah. keep him, yeah. you know, happily entertained and distracted yeah. from what was going on? That, yeah, that's, he, I think that's part of the magic of a garden. It just kind of yeah, kind well, of saws off the rough edges. Uh, you know, he was he was tall. He was a he, gay man. 
And then the, the deep south, you know, being different in any respect is hard to deal with. We get bullied, but he withdrew into his, his, his mother's garden, his grandfather's garden. And then he also found something interesting, Catherine. He found that by sharing these plants, by talking, he would see a similar plant in a, another garden. Might have been a garden club lady, might have been a, a country garden, but he had something to talk about with them. They could share that. What do you call it? How do you grow it? Does it root easily? And first thing you know, he found out that there's a whole connection. You know, you can go all over New England and uh, I give you a classic example, that old orange daylily. We call it the ditch lily, the outhouse lily. The, the only people that don't grow it is the Hemercalis Society. But I've seen this daylily grown all over Japan, Royal Botanic Garden at Kew. It's in on every continent. It grows from Florida to Canada. It grows at the edge of deserts and jungles. It is the single most commonly grown pass along plant on earth. And I've looked for them. It's everywhere. And the neat part about it, it doesn't set seeds. So everywhere you see that orange day lily, especially the double orange day lily, it represents connections between people. For 3,000 years, it's been shared from garden to garden, sometimes escaped. But uh, it, it, it's, a, it's sort of a, a signal that we're okay. They grow that, I grow that, the American Horticulture Society grows it. And so we feel a connection that's beyond the rules of horticulture, which I can make your eyes bleed with. But the double orange daylily, give you a real quick story. I took my daughter up to a, a daylily farm in uh, Rhode Island, down to Rhode Island from you. This place had 7,500 named cultivars of daylily. It was a daylily farm. And the owner told my daughter, who was like seven, she could have any daylily she wanted. And I'm thinking, holy cow, some of those are like $500 for a fan. And after my lecture, she came skipping up and in front of all the other speakers, the owner said, well, Zoe, which one did you pick out? And she said, I really didn't see one that I liked because she grew that old orange thing that you could put on the ground, scooch leaves up to it, it would grow. And she felt like that that was enough for her. And so I'm, I'm trying to, to encourage that in everybody. The orange daylily, get over the fact it's not fancy. It will grow. And when you're tired of looking at it, you can eat it. That is great. I was just going to add that uh, a pass along plant is more than a plant. It's got memories and friendship attached to it. It's very <laughs> special. You know, what makes a plant a pass along? Uh, any, we can share any plant, but in order to become a, a true pass along, to make it across a wide variety of gardens, gardeners, soils, they really have three things in common. First of all, they have value. They're either pretty or they're tasty. Uh, they're heirlooms. Sometimes they're historic. Sometimes they remind you of somebody. But the more different kind of values a plant has, the more different people will grow it. Second of all, it's got to be pretty easy to grow. You don't have to have soil. It'll grow in sometimes just plain D-I-R-T dirt. Doesn't have a lot of pest problems. Doesn't need a lot of pruning. The easier it is to grow, more people will grow it. So value, easy to grow, and to tolerate your climate without artificial life support. But the most important thing, if it's not easy to propagate, it's not going to go very far. So typically, these would be plants that are easy to root, easy to divide, save seeds. Right. Now, you say in your book that plants don't care who you are. No, they don't. They don't. <laughs> plants don't have the human value system. I have so many people say, oh, that's a bad plant. There are no good plants or bad plants. They're just plants. They're just plants. We assign values. You know, the classic definition that I taught as a university professor was a weed is any plant out of place. 
right? Everybody understands that, a rose in a cornfield. Well, since then, since I retired to the horticulturist, I'm trying to be a better gardener and come to find out I'm not that good a gardener. I'm a better expert than a real gardener. But uh, we decided a plant is any, uh, a weed is any plant having to deal with an unhappy human. A wildflower over here can be a beautiful flower border plant over here. And some of our most popular plants here are weeds in Europe. Some of our best weeds here are common grow in British landscapes. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's value systems don't matter to plants. Right. How true. So tell me about Miss Flora McQuirter. <laughs> she had quite the garden, didn't she? Well, you know, I've, I've, I've been gardens like this all over. I mean, I've, I've been to, uh, I've been to gardens all over New England where people tend to do quirky stuff, you know, a lot of scarecrows, a lot of uh, wildflowers, a lot of pollinator plants, anywhere I go, California, anywhere. But there's always some unusual characters. And Flora McCorder was the first one that I remember. And I was raised by some pretty strong gardening women, horticulture's great-grandmother, garden club grandmother, a country grandmother who just had zinnias and a concrete chicken. These all had influences on me. But as a teenager, I worked at a local garden center, and this, this woman would come in named Flora, Flora McCorder. She lived on the banks of the Sunflower River. I'm not making this up. And she she smoked a lot. She cussed a lot. And she never bought anything, but she always brought me little weird plants. And I would deliver stuff. Sometimes she'd need a bale of peat moss or something. And I would deliver it in her company van. And she had all these yappy dogs. But she had the coolest old plants, green roses, things that, that I'd never seen before. And that sort of made an impression with me. And everybody used to talk, oh, she's crazy. She wasn't crazy. She was just a digger. And she was misunderstood because nobody had a point of reference for her. Don't you just love women who smoke a lot and cuss a lot and share flower (laughs) seeds? (laughs) I do. I do. (laughs) Anyway, it's it's been been quite a ride. Now, there's a... There's a serious angle of this. It's not just fun. We're not just celebrating quirky people. These gardeners are keeping alive traditions that are sometimes not taught in university and how to grow things in local soil instead of preparation. You know, when to do things, what's the best time to propagate. They share valuable garden lore that is hard to find in gardening books. But most important, they're keeping these heirloom plants going that come and go out of fashion. You know, they may be popular now because Southern Living Magazine or, or started a flower show or something. But these are the kind of plants that have a sense of place, whether it's New England or Mississippi or Oregon or, or I, I have a garden in England. Different kind of plants, but they're not often sold. And these are repositories. It's almost like a uh, propagation zoo. And so they're, they're what I call the keepers of the flame. It's an exalted position. It should be celebrated instead of mocked because it's a different style. Right. And a lot of these include the native plants. Yeah. Most of the time, the independent gardeners are not going to fuss with plants that, that need a lot of support. It's, it's got to be right. brought in in the winter or if it's got to be, you know, stored, a bag of ice put on it. And a lot of times the best plants are the ones that are native and a real strong sense of place. We have a lot of native azaleas here in the South. They're, they're uh, deciduous azaleas, and they're just lovely and fragrant. They won't grow in New England, but you've got lilacs that we can't grow you know, down here. I know they're not native, but uh, at the same time, you grow Joe Pye weed, I grow Joe Pye weed. Wonderful summer blooming pollinator plant native to the eastern United States. So these are good garden plants, not just 
they're not grown just because they're native. They're grown because they're pretty and they work. And they have to be native, which is a plus for the native wildlife that, that depends on those plants. Right. Now, I would be remiss if I did not mention slow gardening. I mean, you were the one who literally wrote the book on slow gardening. And it's really, if you could talk about that a second, it's just, it's about mindfulness, right? It's about being in the present moment in your yes, garden and um, enjoying everything no, about it. Yeah, this book called Maverick Gardens, it just came out. It's really the third in a trilogy. I've written a couple of dozen books. But over my, my career, I started with a book called Pass Along Plants. It's about the kind of plants that everybody grows. And it was uh, it still sells quite well. It's about sharing plants, the plants that share. Slow gardening uh, came out of my working with the slow food people in Italy who like local cuisine, local recipes, local traditions, you know, potluck. They call it convivia. We call it potluck. But, but local people using time-tested plants to grow well, or maybe somebody's got good eggs or somebody makes a good wine or bread, but doing things the opposite of fast food, home cooking and sharing. And I took that working again with the, with the people there at Slow Garden because they teach their, the people who go to their culinary institute to grow food to share with others, mostly culinary herbs. And I said, this is what a lot of gardeners do. They use time-tested techniques. They use tools that are they're the only moving part. I use a turning fork that belonged to my great-grandmother. It still works. They know what the temperature is. They know when it's time to plant, you know, because the soil is finally warm or in the late frost. They garden with all their senses through all year. In the wintertime, they've got windowsill of little plants that they've rooted or they nurtured through the wintertime. So they savor Things uh, One of my favorite examples, if you've ever gotten your fingernails dirty, you scrub them so hard that your fingertips tingle, that's part of gardening too. That's part of gardening. And we forget that to savor things and relax and, and share with others. These are important things to teach children. And you'll find that a lot of the diggers in the Maverick Gardeners also share plants and herbs and show children how to garden. See, so that's precious. But slow gardening is about savoring all the senses, all the seasons, relaxing, enjoy the process as well as the product. Yeah, I like the list you have in the book where you mentioned having a swing in the garden. Oh, yeah. Lowering the chains. So, you know, the swing has a bigger swoop to it. Well, my dad told me my grandma had a little swing and sit in and go yink, 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 yink. You couldn't relax and it wiggled and all yink, 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 yink. But my dad had one long chain and just nodded and just goes nice and slow, nice and slow. And he told me that the period of the arc is proportional to the radius of the, the longer the chain, the slower the swing. And you can sit in it without anybody spilling their drink. And they've got this new thing now. You can get it online. It's called a swing spring. You hook your chains to this big spring. And it's not exactly sexy, but it's relaxing. Yeah. And the yeah. swing doesn't jar. Things like that. I, I, one other example. When you go out to feed birds, you're going to take bird seed out in the wintertime. You can go from the house to the porch to the pavement to the mulch. And then back, you get in and out in what, 15, 20 seconds. But meanwhile, you hear things, you see things, you feel things, the texture of the mulch or your sidewalk, you feel those things through the bottom of your feet. Little things like that, just, just, uh, it's like if you're a cook, you wanna keep your knife sharp and just sharpening the knife makes you calmer and more relaxed. So there's a lot of metaphors for psychology the Maverick Garden book, in case anybody, you know, shameless, it just came out. I mean, it just came out. It's got the kind of things in there where people relax and enjoy and enjoy sharing with each other. 
this is about the people who do the process using the pass along plants. I love that cover. It looks great. This is real unusual. You know, so many people think it's going to be a certain type of gardener is going to have. By the way, I grow stuff in the back of a pickup truck. <laughs> yeah. I've been growing stuff in the back of my truck, which has been to Boston. It's been to New Hampshire. It's I been love to it. Canada. And I grow stuff in the back of it just to find out what will grow. We get down to 15 degrees in the wintertime, got to 10 last week. It's nothing for you, but it's devastating for us. These plants take 10 degrees. They take 105 degrees in the summer. I live in England all summer from May till September. Nobody waters it. I don't cover it when the freezes. And they'll even take 81 miles an hour, <laughs> according to how we patrol. I got a document from them. But I wanted to find plants that will grow in the worst possible conditions, you know, the hell strip between the, 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 the street and the, and the sidewalk that don't need a lot of care that are there year after year after year. And so that's the way this horticulture grows, looking for plants that'll tolerate the minimum instead of what's the maximum we can do to get the most out of it. There's a book right there, hell strip gardening. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Or, and uh, like I say, in the back of my pickup truck, I have uh, right, right now I've got kale, I've got rosemary, I've got oregano, they call it oregano in England. I've got chickweed, I've got little violas. I could eat roadkill with that combination. (laughs) (laughs) I have something, that's one thing that Dr. Dirt used to do. He would come into our our national public radio program every week from the little small town garden, ride a bus in every week. And he always had a big bouquet of flowers in his hand that he cut that morning in his garden. I, I just show you. I show you a real quick picture. By the way, this is Dr. Dirt. Oh wow! He was incredible. You know yeah. what? This is so weird. We travel literally all over the country, staying in hotels, little short, overweight, long-haired white horticulturists, and a big, tall, black gay guy with a do rag. And we never had any trouble. We wanted to have trouble, but because we were <laughs> gardeners and small. But here's some of the bouquets that he would bring oh, every wow. week of the year something in, from his garden. And Beautiful. Really he, nice. Didn't have a lick of horticulture training at all. He was wow. a home, home cook in a garden. Amazing. So, I'm telling anybody who has a, a piece of a, of, a, of a plant that they got from their grandmother, the aunt in the windowsill, they're part of this. You don't right. have to be whole hog. It's a big tent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can tell you as a little girl, when I was eight or nine years old, I grew up in New Haven County in Connecticut, which was a very yeah. urbanized yeah. area, a lot of manufacturing. So there weren't a heck of a lot of trees in our neighborhood, but I would ride my bike around the block, you know, and there was this one house, there was no fence and the whole backyard was filled with trees and bushes and flowering plants. And I would skid to a stop on that bike and just listen, listen to the birds and the bumblebees and watch the butterflies and like I said, there was no fence, but there was a, a very narrow dirt path. Yeah. It was my first foray into trespassing, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but I love that place. It was irresistible. And, you know, the people in the neighborhood made fun of that lady. Yeah, of course. They of made course fun of her because she didn't, you know, have everything in under control, quote, unquote. But I love that yard. It was my favorite place in the whole neighborhood. And I could oh. never just ride by it. I always had to stop. We have this saying. It doesn't matter what you do or how you do it. People are going to talk about you anyway. So why not just enjoy yourself? Why not just enjoy yourself? Seize the day. Right. Right. And gardening is a wonderful way 
to not only express yourself here and here and with your body, but also to connect with neighbors. And the easiest way to do that is right around. Not going to take you very long to find one of those diggers, one of those maverick garters. Stop. They're probably going to be shy. They're probably going to be used to being mocked. But you'll see something in the garden. And if you'll just say, my grandmother used to grow that. What do you call that? And next thing you know, you are in and you've got cuttings and all sorts of stuff because they're grateful to have somebody to share their love and their, their you know, the word amateur means to love. And they're grateful. Mm-hmm. All you got to do is just stop and ask about a plant and you are in. Uh, and it is a slippery slope. You might end up doing it yourself. Isn't it great how we've come full circle? I mean, for decades, we've just, you know, our front lawns look like militarized zones. Everything looks the same. Yeah. But the diggers, the people you mentioned in the book, they were the ones that held out, yeah. you know, and stayed original. Now we're all swinging back that way. And there they are. It's, a, it's sort of a slice of cottage. Uh, again, I've lived for many years in England, a little small village in northern England, and I do a lot of walking. I visit a lot of gardens. And uh, the cottage gardens that we hold to such high esteem, if you take your glasses off, they look like digger gardens. <laughs> you know, they're very neat, but the textures and the shapes all run together, and there's something blooming from spring. Even the wintertime. In England, they, d- they design parts of their garden to be at their peak in the wintertime when there's not much else going on. See, so they get the most out. So diggers are, let me just say, informal cottage gardeners with, right. the, with, with the hoses stretched out. And, and uh, I tell you, you can tell you're a digger. Here's a, th- this book has got some things is, one is if you've got a queue of pots out there with plants waiting for a place to go. You know, if you don't have a, a row of plants that have been out there for a year waiting for something else to die, if you've ever grown anything in a milk jug, you're probably a digger. <laughs> you know, and if you've ever put some seeds in your pocket when you really shouldn't have, that's sort of part of it. You know, is it unethical? Sure. Has everybody done it? Heck yeah. But the trick is you pass along some of that to somebody else. And I live in a small lot. My pickup truck and a car, nose to nose, and that's how wide my garden is. Mm-hmm. Uh, front yard and backyard are square, but I've got possums, raccoons, birds. There's I got barred owls, and they're wow. mating this week, and it is wild. Yeah, uh, all sorts great. of songbirds. I've got uh, lizards. I got skinks and anoles and and uh, and geckos. I've got three kinds of non-poison snake, dragonflies, and my neighbors have got wall-to-wall grass. Right, all more on a rope on the slope. And I'm thinking, yep, you know, I spend less time weeding my garden all year then they spend mowing their grass twice right i get to sit back and watch the show and feel like i'm doing something good yeah you sure are and i'm not even trying i'm just going with the flow i'm not yeah. doing it it's like growing my hair i'm not doing it on purpose i'm just letting it happen and gardening and these kind of plants and the plants that i've got from other people are what bring it together right felder thank you so much for joining us today my pleasure, Catherine. Love to share it. You know, I tell people all the time, go forth and dig. Yeah, you're a breath of fresh air. I'd like to thank Felder Rushing for joining us today. His new book, Maverick Gardeners, Dr. Dirt and Other Determined Independent Gardeners, is published by the University Press of Mississippi and can be found at Amazon.com and the Barnes & Noble website. You can also learn more about Felder and his gardening books by going to felderrushing.net. 
Join Americans everywhere in the One Third for the Birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.